Check, check. Check. Mic, check. Mic, check. <laughs> Alright. Cool. Alright, ready to go. Welcome to the Dear John Stories podcast. Uh, last week or sometime in the past, we recorded the first episode like a pilot. We learnt specific things like talking near the microphone. Well, talking really far away from the microphone, and now hopefully you'll be able to hear my dulcet tones next to Micah's powerful, booming voice. I also realised that with my powerful, booming voice, I, um, I sound a lot more like Kurt than I thought I did. <laughs> Like, um, I, I just sound big and boisterous, whereas you sound like a real intellectual. Oh, oh okay, yeah. I thought this was some guy named Kurt that, you know, was a voice inspiration yeah. for you. No? Yeah, Kurt Wagner. It's no one. <laughs> uh, that's that newsreader, isn't it? No, I think it's actually the um, the name of Nightcrawler from the X-Men. I think it's actually oh his God. actual name. That, what, that's a strangely deep cut reference. <laughs> I read a lot of Excalibur comics when I was growing up, you know. <laughs> they were the ones with Captain Britain. He was the British Marvel mutant. Oh, Excalibur is the... Was that like an English armor? Yeah, that so say? like X-Men, but Excalibur. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's... Mm. Are you upset by that? No, I just think it's like it's so regionally specific. I'm interested to see what those actually look like. Pretty great. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're back to record some more stories for my dad, uh, John. So he's uh, in hospital. He'll be there for a while. Uh, he's a bit immobile. Uh, and he's also legally blind. So, you know, when he's sitting there and he can't move and he can't see, this is giving him something to do. Uh, even if the only thing he has to do is tell me that I should write better stories. <laughs> or stand closer to the microphone. He'll probably give me that criticism after the first episode and he'll be like, wow, they really they really got that this time. Yeah. Uh, for this one, I've got the original story I've written picked out, but uh, I've, got, I've got a very short story I'm going to read. So I'm also going to read one other story, but I'm going to give Eric a choice out of a book of short stories that I really like. Mm. Uh, it's this... I guess you'd call it science fiction author Howard Waldrop, but he's so strange. It's not really like it's not science fiction like you'd think. It's this book I've got is called Strange Things in Close Up. It's just a a collection of his. He's a he's an author that like writes very slowly. Like he doesn't bring out many short stories, but anybody who likes writing likes him. Um, and the stories I've got to choose between. Do you want to hear what they are? Yeah, go for it. So I thought uh, there's one called The Ugly Chickens. <laughs> yep, very within theme from the last episode. Yeah. Yep. There's one called uh, Man Mountain Ganeshin. <clears throat> or mm. Genshin. Genshin, sorry. Man Mountain Genshin. Uh, that one's about sumo wrestlers with psychic powers. Okay, all right, amazing. Uh, there's one that I think you would love and I think my dad would love. But the thing is, outside of the two of you, I don't know anyone else that might like it, so okay. I don't know if we should record it. Okay. It's one called God's Hooks, yeah. and it combines Puritanism with fishing. I'm really into that. Uh, let's do it. Let's do that one then. So uh, we're going to do God's Hooks. I guess also just for reference, uh, I a little while ago took a trip on a cargo ship uh, where I was quite sort of isolated for about 10 days or so out at sea. And Micah, being the generous friend that he is, gave me a book to read while I was on the ship, which was uh, Trout Fishing in America. So I was on this ship being bored, alone, and the only company I had was this book that my good friend had recommended to me. 
I really didn't like it. I, I, <laughs> I really disliked that book. Um, but I, it was one of the ones where I guess I just read it and then thought about it a lot afterwards, uh, a lot. And it was about fishing and I was at sea, so... Yeah, but it's not really about fishing. Is, <laughs> why did, I'm just curious to, to, to know, why did you think John and I would both like this book? Well, my dad will like it because it partly takes, like, Paul Bunyan. Uh, he's the guy that wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, which is this really famous old Puritan text where a guy has a journey to the kingdom of heaven, uh, but kind of on earth, but not really earth. He's sort of, it's like a like a Dante type thing. You know, he keeps going through like the fair of vanity and meeting Mr. Gullible <laughs> yeah. and, and things like that and Mr. Greedy. And, you know, it's like right. it's like one of those really spelled out, like, like all of the metaphors are just boom, in your face. Right, okay, yeah. Um, so John Bunyan was this guy that was really, you know, really fiery preacher and, and my dad loves that stuff. And then the, the fishing element and all of that, it just makes it just this strange story that, that's so unusual, mm. you know, that's not like any other story I've read. I guess, oh, yeah, I was quite confused when you started talking about that because I thought uh, I was thinking about Paul Bunyan. You know, the myth of Paul Bunyan? The, the uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, John Bunyan's the John... guy. Did I say John Bunyan or Paul Wait, Bunyan? You, which one did you? I can't uh, remember which one I said. <laughs> yeah, but John Bunyan's that giant guy that chopped yeah. down trees in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And planted, oh, wait, did he plant apple? Oh, no, that was Johnny Appleseed. No, that was Johnny Appleseed, yeah. Uh, Paul Bunyan had a, a big blue cow, I think. Yeah, yeah. and he had an axe. Yeah. Or something, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting in the mindset of this bizarre sort of science fiction. Look, it's pretty crazy. Mm. Uh, I'm going to read the shortest short story first. Mm. I was actually hoping to read a different one out of this book, but I realised um, that it's not in this book, the different one. It's in another book. So uh, this one I'm going to read is from a, a, um, a Chinese anthology of ghost stories and fables. Uh, it's very short, but it's one of my favourite short, short stories. So I just decided I'd read it. It's called, and I really feel like I just should have read this last episode. Um, it's called The Bird Killed by Kindness. Uh, I feel like we're, we're having such a strong theme with birds. Is there, <laughs> is there something that's drawing you to these bird stories? Is this another one? Nah. <laughs> it's okay, just happening. Enough, okay. It's just happening. <laughs> but when you hear this, you'll be like, that's great. And, you, you know, you might, I may, it may have even inspired my uh, Flamingo story oh, in some way. Okay. I don't. I, I didn't consciously have it inspired, but when I reread it on the tram this morning, getting here. All right, here we go. It's called "The Bird Killed by Kindness." It's by Shuang uh, Su. I I don't know if I'm pronouncing. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. So. <laughs> right, "The Bird Killed by Kindness." A seagull alighted in a suburb of the capital of Lu. The Marquis of Lu welcomed it and feasted it in the temple hall, ordering the best music and grandest sacrifices for it. But the bird remained in a daze, looking quite wretched and not daring to swallow a morsel of meat or a single cup of wine, and after three days it died. This was entertaining the seagull as the Marquis of Lou liked to be entertained and not as a seagull likes to be entertained. (laughs) (laughs) There's something in that for all of us. Yeah, um, I don't even know what to make of that story. I mean, it's got that really nice rhythm to it. But I have no idea what happened then. That's... Well, I just I love the idea of like this king throwing a party for a seagull <laughs> that's just like clearly like hit a window or something. Yeah. And then the seagull dying and the king being like, What? <laughs> I think it's such a bizarre fable. Mm. I don't really like I get that it's like 
it's like it's it's almost like the opposite of the golden rule. That's why I love it because the golden rule is treat other people how you want to be treated. But it's like, whoa, what if that's wrong for them? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I think it's amazing. Great little story. And here's one for me. It's not as good. <laughs> uh, so this one is I tried to just write a new Greek myth. It's called Tidius and Mayon go camping. I also might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Some people say Titus, but I say Tidius. It's I mean it's up to you how you'd like to say it uh, when you're saying it in everyday conversation. <laughs> Before I start reading out this story, uh, I'm just going to explain that I've put in a bunch of Greek names in this, especially names of Greek gods, and I really, I'm really not that sure how to pronounce the names I wrote down. So <laughs> I might pronounce them two different ways. I might stumble over it, but I'm just going to keep going through it because the story's, the story's the thing, right? Okay, here we go. Tidius and Maon go camping. Out of great respect for each other, Tidius and Maon chose to wander a while before returning to their respective posts. Each wanted to learn how the other could become so noble while living among such hated enemies. Tidius had been ambushed by 50 men on his way to Thebes with a message for the king. He had slain all but one of them, Maon, whom he spared in accordance with the gods' wishes. Maon knew he wouldn't be killed by Tidius because he had been shown in a vision that he would be cursed three times by the gods before he fell. The first curse had happened in battle with Tidius when the sword he had blessed by Hephaestus... Oh, fuck. i got to read Greek names in this. I looked them up on Wikipedia, basically. Hephaestus? The god of Hephaestus. Yeah, okay. I know that from Hercules, the Disney animated movie. Hephaestus? Hephaestus. Hephaestus. Okay, cool. Also, I love how last time you just left all of my mistakes from the reading, and that was great. Thank you. You're Eric, welcome. So, you know, I don't want to sound too cool or anything. <laughs> all right, so I'll start from that paragraph again. Mayon knew he wouldn't be killed by Tidius because he had been shown in a vision that he would be cursed three times by the gods before he fell. The first curse had happened in battle with Tidius, when the sword he had blessed by Hephaestus, god of blacksmiths, to always find its mark, refused to leave its scabbard. After talking with Tidius... He attributed this to a minor blessing placed on Tidius by the god Caerus, who had unknowingly helped when Caerus had been disguised as a blind beggar. Tidius and Maon knew that when they returned to their leaders, they would soon have to fight on opposing sides again, so they decided to spend a day and a night camping and hunting to rejuvenate before they again had to prove themselves in conflict. They headed away from Thebes and its seven gates towards the mountains and looked for a place to camp. Seeing a nice, small, wooded glade, they made towards it, but stopped suddenly as a magnificent buck walked into the very middle of the glade and was immediately struck by a perfect ray of sunshine. This was the beginning of their misfortune, and Maon was soon to be cursed by the gods a second time. "'This is the start of our fortune!' exclaimed Tidius. Not only have we found our camping spot, but our hunting has been done for us. This goat will make an excellent feast for two weary soldiers.' Truly, this is a beautiful spot for a rest, with trees all around to protect us from weather, and may I say that this is the most beautiful buck I have ever seen. It will surely taste as good as ambrosia, added Maon. I will circle round behind him and drive him towards that sword of yours, suggested Tidius. I will slit its throat and skin it before it hits the ground, agreed Maon. What they did not know was that this most handsome of goats was in fact Kratos, the titan, the god of power. He had spied some beautiful mortal women who had been playing together in the glade and had planned to seduce at least one of them by appearing as a most gorgeous and thoughtful goat. 
Upon transformation, he'd gotten a little lost and the women had left and he was only now thinking of transforming back into his true form to find a sport somewhere else. Tidius ran at the goat, screaming wildly, and it bolted towards Maon, who drew his sword. Truly this time, and as he said, slit the throat and skinned the beast before it hit the ground. They made a fire and hoisted the corpse onto a spit made from a few branches. Tidius began to prepare a prayer of thanks to the gods for their good fortune, and Maon sliced a small piece off the goat to have a taste. Exquisite, Maon exclaimed. Surely this proves the prettier the animal, the tastier the meat. Let me taste some, said Tidius. Maon sliced off another sliver of the slowly cooking meat and noticed something extraordinary. When he sliced the carcass, it would slowly grow back into place. He told Tidius and demonstrated the phenomena. What magic can this be, they asked. There was a loud boom from above them, and in the sky the two warriors could see the image of Pallas, the god of Warcraft, husband of Styx and father of Kratos. He did not appear happy. Mortals, have you seen my son Kratos? Artemis was told by a dryad that lives in this glade that some humans have somehow captured him and now hold him powerless. I do not believe it possible, yet I have called for him and he does not come, boomed the voice of Pallas. Both warriors tried as hard as they could not to look at the formerly handsome goat strung up over their campfire. We have seen no gods around here, yelled Tidius, the braver of the two, until you yourself, of course, O great Pallas. We are warriors who will have to go to war, and so we offer you only respect and praise, yelled Maon, the wiser of the two. We are humbled in your presence. Well, then you must search these woods for my son, or else find the dryad who lives here to bring her to report to me, proclaimed Pallas. Dryads were wood nymphs, spirits of nature who were notoriously shy, especially around all gods except for Artemis, the god of nature, who they loved. The warriors knew that if they let Pallas look for the dryad from the glade himself, they would surely be dead as they now realised exactly what, or rather who, it was they had roasting up on their campfire, even if they weren't sure how. So they devised a plan to find a way to get Pallas to believe they had spoken to the dryad and that she had been mistaken and about seeing Kratos in the area. We will look now for you, Pallas, but you know how shy the dryads are, especially around gods. Maybe if you made a promise that you would not harm anyone in this glade while you are here today, it would help bring her out of hiding, Maon suggested. Hmm, this is true, mortal. If you think it would help, I make a promise that while Pallas is here today, he will not harm anyone in this glade. Now, if you'll give me some of that goat as an offering, I will bless your search and bless you for your next battle, Pallas announced. Uh, this old buck is not worthy of a god, Tidius tried. Nonsense. I will accept its hindquarters as an offering, Pallas replied. But should we not kill a beast in your honour rather than merely carving off a slab of meat, Maon implored. Mortals, I do not have time or patience to be disobeyed. I don't want you off hunting. I want you searching. You will give me some meat as an offering that I might chew on it while you look for my, any sign of my son, Pallas boomed. Tidius and Maon looked at each other and knew they could not disobey. Maon carved a leg off the huge goat and held it aloft. Pallas reached down from the skies and drew the leg up to his mouth. As soon as he bit into the flesh, he knew what had happened. Ah! Did you think you could hide this from me? My son? I have tasted my own son? You will surely now die, screamed Pallas. But when he moved to destroy them, he found he could not. You made a promise that you would not harm anyone in this glade today, and a god cannot break his promise, cried Maon. 
Stupid mortal, I may have promised not to harm anyone in this glade today, but what of tomorrow? You will die and I will kill you, Pallas yelled. We will run, hide, and find safety. We know places we can find sanctuary that you dare not enter or harm us, said Tidius, hoping he sounded confident. If you leave now, you will no longer be in the glade, and my promise will not cover you in any way. You shall not leave. I may have promised not to harm, but that does not mean I cannot trap you. I will make these trees grow close together, Pallas said, and the trees closed in around the warriors, leaving no space to slip through. And I will curse them so that they will only grow back stronger immediately when struck. In this way, you will not escape, and I will have my revenge tomorrow. And with a crack and a boom, Pallas vanished from above the glade, and the warriors found themselves in deep despair. The first thing they did was hack at the trees with their sword. But just as Pallas declared, they watched the trees heal themselves and grow back stronger. They both sat down dejected miserable and ready to run themselves through on their own swords rather than face the angry god tomorrow. You know, said Tidius, we may as well eat. And so they both tore great chunks of meat from the goat on the spit and watched the flesh grow back and cook again and again. This sparked an idea in Maon, who stood up suddenly and walked to one of the surrounding trees and picked up a twig from the ground. He hacked a chunk from the tree and stuck the twig into the wound. The tree grew back immediately, but it grew around the tree twig. Aha, exclaimed Maon, I think I may have a plan. He told Tidius his idea, and since neither had anything to lose by trying, they began to put it into action. The first part of the plan was to dig deep into the ground for stones. When they had enough stones, they began mixing water with the earth to make mud. And Maon built a small archway out of stones and stuck it together with the mud. When this had dried next to the fire, he carried it to one edge of the trees. Together they hacked at the woods until they could shove the archway into the gap and watch as the trees grew back around it, leaving a small hole to the outside world underneath, the stone archway through which they could crawl to freedom. Tidius crawled through the archway first, but just as Maon made to follow him, Tidius crashed back through into the glade. Pallas is out there patrolling, yelling and cursing. I fear if he spotted us, there would be no escape, cried Tidius. But what can we do? We are still trapped. We will surely die tomorrow when he is no longer held by his promise. They both cursed their luck. And then Maon remembered that he had only been cursed by the gods twice so far, and so he would live. He just had to think of a way to survive. Maon stared up at the sky and was once again inspired. He told Tidius his plan, and since the last had worked to a good degree, they agreed to make it happen. They began climbing high into the trees and hacking at them and pulling on them before dropping back to the ground. They did this over and over again, and the trees grew back bigger and stronger. As they did this, eventually the trees grew from either side until branches covered the glade like a rooftop. Even then, they climbed back up and hacked away repeatedly. We need them to grow very strong indeed if they are to stop a god, exclaimed Tidius, and so we cannot rest until the day is done. And so they spent all the night and all of their strength hacking at the trees. They pushed dirt and branches to disguise the archway they had made, and then they sat down to eat some more goat and wait to see if their plan had worked. When the morning came, Pallas came storming towards the glade and went to jump over the trees into the clearing. When he landed on the wooden canopy, he wondered what had happened. He ran over the trees looking for a way in. When he could not find one, he tore at the trees and raged. The trees grew back stronger. He tried cursing the trees. They withered and then they grew back stronger. He grabbed his sword and slashed at the trees, which grew back stronger. There was no way in. He screamed in rage and then thought, If there is no way in, then there is no way out. Humans, 
You may think you have bested me, but you have trapped yourselves. The will of Pallas will not be denied, and you will die by my doing. For without me, you would not have been trapped. It is not as satisfying as a swift death, but you will die, and it will be slow, lonely, and painful, and perhaps worse punishment for warriors, as you will not die in battle, but cowering under trees. And now I must go mourn my son. Pallas left the glade and headed towards Hades to see his wife and tell her about the fate of their son. Tydeus and Maon rejoiced. They had escaped the wrath of a god and in the process now possessed the location of a near impenetrable fortress. They both agreed that whoever side won the upcoming battle should have claim over the miraculous glade. They also agreed that it would probably be for the best if they took the goat off the spit and dragged it outside before running as far away as possible. They had already faced one angry god, and they supposed that if they left the goat to rejuvenate completely away from a flame, they might have one less huge problem to worry about in the future. Tydeus and Maon hugged and parted, both hurrying away to their leaders, ready to face a worthy foe in their next battle. <laughs> uh, great story about turning a frown upside down and <laughs> cannibalism. <laughs> well, is it cannibalism? I mean, are gods, are titans made of the same thing as humans? No, I suppose not. Maybe it's a... But that's, I mean, like, it's definitely a strong theme of... Or maybe it's just a vehicle, um, the cannibalism and the way that you use it. Um, is that even an important part? I don't know. Uh, I don't know either. What do, you, what do you mean, is that an important part? Like... Well, maybe that's the turn is when, uh, when um, Kratos is eaten by his father, Pallas, Um that's when Pallas is sort of, you know, finally realizes and decides to become wrathful, which pushes the story towards a conclusion. So I guess that's, it feels like an important part. I guess it is, yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, I imagine, and I mean, this is a podcast for my dad that no father wants to eat the flesh of their son. Oh, that's so meta. I didn't even think about John's. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know what John feels about this and maybe, I mean, are you projecting in any way or... Whoa, uh, look, I hadn't, I wasn't thinking about my dad when I wrote that story. I mean, I guess to, you know, children, all parents are gods at some point, and then they, they have the fall when they realise they're fallible, but uh, mm. not you, John, you're infallible, I know that, so. <laughs> Did this come from uh, an existing story? Is this like an, a modern update of an existing myth? Or? No, it just fits in the middle of two myths. Mm. Yeah, it, because there was... Uh, it's basically the the heroes from Seven at Thebes. It's actually two sort of more minor heroes from Seven at Thebes, mm. which is a famous, you know, Greek story. I don't know that one. Um, well, there's seven gates at Thebes, and 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 you know, seven seven heroes take on the whole might of Thebes, kind of thing. Um, and that's that's what it is. Right. Okay. I can't I can't remember exactly the background now. I had it really well in my head when I wrote the story, and I worked out that this fits like perfectly in the middle because like. Tidius did get ambushed by Maon and spared him, and then they both went back to their, their forces. Ah, oh, so this is a kind of short interlude in a wider saga, and then you flesh that out. Yeah, yeah. just just thought I'd make a, a, a funny little story about humans beating gods. I wrote this one, actually, because at work, uh, my nephew works with me, and uh, my nephew and you both really like like all the ancient myths mm. and that sort of thing. And so those two stories are ones I just wrote for a Christmas card. I told everyone I'd write some stories for them to read over Christmas. And I thought I'd write one that he might read. <laughs> and that's why I wrote that one. <laughs> I, do, I do really love Greek myths. And I think it's because the characters are so outrageous, especially the, the 
Greek gods, uh, maybe less the heroes, but I mean, like, it, you you kind of play with that really nicely as well when like Kratos is out there in the, the most desirable form that he can think of to have sex with young women, which is a goat. and, and that's A very sexy a goat. A very wise and handsome goat, I think you said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, beautiful and thoughtful, I think, were the words. I can't remember. Maybe maybe that's what you're projecting in this story. <laughs> Are you trying to say, I, I want to be the goat? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. And then you get all the intertextuality of, like, that in Christianity, goats were forms of Satan. Right, yeah. I mean, so that's Whoa. Pan, right? So, yeah, Pan. God, yeah. The, and God, then you Pan. get the, the cloven hoof, half man, half goat version of Satan, and that comes from paganism. No? Yeah, but if I was really projecting, I feel like the goat would have got some in this story. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a pretty bad day for Kratos, right? <laughs> oh, Kratos is having a terrible time. <laughs> That's probably why he's so angry in the God of War games. Oh, okay. So is that the is that the same character? Yeah, same character. From? Okay. I, I feel like the authors were inspired in different directions than me, though. <laughs> I do also love this uh, this idea of kind of you know turning the the promise on its head or turning turning the wrath on its head and having it a bastion of protection was a really nice touch. The other thing, the other theme in the story that I really liked is the idea that these two guys just, like, stopped in the mid of battle not killing each other, decided to go camping before they go back to fight again. <laughs> yeah, sure, have a little meal and a chat. and yeah. Like, the, the, there's something in that that there's, you know, this, this lifestyle of honour, you know, where you can finish your battle and you can drink it and eat with your foe and then say, I'll meet you again and we'll see whoever, you know, whoever is the better soldier wins. Something in the absurdity of kind of organised violence there as well of, you know, just people meeting as people outside of these conflicts that they are almost beholden to, where they have to, they know that they have to meet the next time to try and kill each other. I don't, I don't know how much for me that is about the kind of honourable lifestyle as much as it speaks to this idea of the absurdity of organised violence. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the honour of violence and the absurdity of violence are so intertwined, aren't mm-hmm. they, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose maybe that's what they're thinking about when they're eating this regenerating goat. Could be. Mm. Could be. Do you have any other thoughts? Uh, I guess I just I just kept thinking about the the cannibalism in that I just couldn't get away from that. And and also that uh you know, I I also really love the way that you used the gods' own rules and playing with the the kind of established order of rules that are made by these gods who are I, I mean like omnipotent, right? Like they they're able to do anything and everything that they want. But once they make those rules, they have to stay to them. I think that's really an interesting kind of motif as well in the story. And what's really interesting there, I guess, for me, is like since we're going to be doing a story about Puritanism, the difference in, in the way that, that humans see gods in the Greek myths in that gods can be bested for a while and that, sure, the gods do have to keep to what they say, but that makes them both powerful and and fallible? I don't know how to say Yeah, it. I mean, I think fallible is a really nice way to put it. This is why I was always very interested in the Greek mythologies is because they are really great parables. You know, they're these huge kind of uh, godly figures, but they have really flawed human traits, you know, and that's what makes them interesting to read. And I think what's most interesting is that when they're interacting together as gods, the Greeks, they're so driven by base emotion just so mm. crazy. And then when they deal with humans, they almost can't understand the humans because humans almost have more thoughtful actions. Yeah, right, yeah. That's a that's an interesting take on that. 
I like that a lot, actually, that the, the gods kind of represent something that's much rawer and larger than, than human life. But there is a connection there. There is a kind of really clear, shared connection there. Yeah, I mean, continually the gods are tricked into such huge anger over nothing mm. or over, you know, stuff that they could very easily investigate. <laughs> Shall we go to the next story? Yeah. Also, if we record this and you think that no one will like it, we can just record one of the other stories. It's more like there's a lot of very entertaining stories oh, in this, yeah. whereas this one, as I said, is like it's such a niche story. It's so interesting. I think the niche stories are really fun, though. I'm also I'm just really interested now that you've introduced it, saying that uh, John and I would both have this story in common. Like, well, yeah, but I feel like um, the thing is that I think you would both like this story, but I feel like you'll like it in different ways as well mm, okay. and from a different point of understanding. Okay. Because... My, you know, my dad will have a huge understanding of, of Puritanism and also the style of language in it. Mm. Um, whereas I honestly think that you'll love the fishing camaraderie of the men <laughs> a lot. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Okay. God's hooks. And I want to point out that it's God with an apostrophe and then an S. And it's got an exclamation point after the word hooks. So, God's hooks. They were in the end of the world tavern at the bottom of Great Ork Street. The place was crowded, noisy. As patrons came in, they paused to kick their boots on the floor and shake the cinders from their rough clothes. The air smelled of wood smoke, singed hair, heated and melted glass. Ho! yelled a man at one of the noisiest tables to his companions, who were dressed more finely than the other workmen around him. Here's old Isaac now, come up from Staffordshire. A man in his seventies, dressed in brown with a wide white collar, bagged pants and cavalier boots, stood in the doorway. He took off his high-brimmed hat and shook it against his pants leg. "'Good evening, Charles, Percy, Mr Marberton,' he said, his grey eyes showing merry above his full white moustache and Van Dyke beard. "'Father Isaac,' said Charles Cotton, rising and embracing the older man. Cotton was wearing a new-style wig, whose curls and ringlets flowed onto his shoulders." Mr. Peel, if you please, sherry all round, yelled Cotton to the innkeeper. The old man seated himself. Sherry's dear, said the innkeeper. Though our enemy, the King of France, is sending two ships' consignments this fortnight, the great fire has worked wonders. What matters the price when there's good fellowship, asked Cotton. Price is all, said Marberton, melancholy round man. Well, Father Isaac, said Charles, turning to his friend, how looks the house on Chancery Lane? Praise to God, Charles. The fire burnt but the top floor. Enough remains to rebuild, if decent timbers can be found. Why, the lumbermen are selling green wood most expensive and finding ready buyers. Their woodchoppers are working day and night in the north, since good King Charles gave them leave to cut his woods down, said Percy, and drained his glass. They'll not stop till all England's flat and level as Dutchman's land, said Marberton. If they're not careful, they'll play hob with the rivers, said Cotton. And the streams, said Isaac. And the ponds, said Percy. Oh, the fish, said Marberton. All four sighed. Ah, but come, said Isaac. No joylessness here. I'm the only one to suffer from the fire at this table. We'll have no long faces till April. Why, there's tench and dace to be had, and pickerel. What matters the salmon's in his Neptunian rookery? Who cares what the trout burrow in the mud and bite not from coat of soot and cinders? We've the roach and the gudgeon. I suffered from the fire, said Percy. What? Your house lies to the east, said Isaac. My book was at Bindery at the office of stationers. A neighbour brought me a scorched and singed bundle of title pages. They fell 16 miles west of town, like snow, I suppose. Isaac winked at Cotton. 
Well, Percy, that can be set aright soon as the station is reopened. What you need is something right good to eat. He waved to the barkeep, who nodded and went outside to the kitchen. I was in early and prevailed on Mr Peel to fix a supper to cheer the Darris disposition. What with shortages, it might not pass for kings, but we are not so high. Ah, here it comes. Mr Peel returned with a huge round platter. High and thick, it smelled of fresh-baked dough, meat and savouries. It looked like a cooked pond. In a line around the outside, halves of whole pilchards stuck out, looking up at them with wide eyes, as if they'd been struggling to escape being cooked. Oh, Isaac, said Percy, tears of joy springing to his eyes. A stargazy pie. Peel beamed with pleasure. It may not be the best, he said, but it's the end of the world. He put a finger alongside his nose and laughed. He took great pleasure in puns. The four men at the table fell to, elbows and pewter forks flying. They sat back from the table full. They said nothing for a few minutes and stared out the great bow window of the tavern. The shop across the way blocked the view. They could not see the ruins of London, which stretched, charred, black and still smoking from the tower to the temple. Only the waterfront in that great length had been spared. On the fourth day of that great fire, the king had given orders to blast with gunpowder all houses in the way of the flames. It had been done, creating the breaks that with a dying wind had brought it under control and saved the city. What the city has gone through this past year, said Percy, it's lucky, Isaac, that you live down country and have not suffered till now. They say the fire didn't touch the worst of the plague districts, said Marbiton. I would imagine that such large crowds milling and looking for shelter will cause another one this winter. Best we should all leave the city before we drop dead in our steps. Since the comet of December year before last, there's been nothing but talk of doom on everyone's lips, said Cotton. Apocalypse talk, said Percy. Like as not it's right, said Marbiton. They heard the clanging bell of a crier at the next cross street. The tavern was filling in the late afternoon light. Carpenters, tradesmen covered with soot, a few soldiers all soiled, came in. Why, the whole city seems full of chimney sweeps, said Percy. The crier's clanging bell sounded and he stopped before the window of the tavern. New edict from His Majesty Charles II to be posted concerning rebuilding of the city. New edict from Council of Aldermen on rents and leases to be posted. An act concerning movements of trade and shipping to new keys to become law. Assize court session to begin September 27. Please God, foreign nations to send all manner of aid to the city. Murder on New Ogden Street, felon apprehended in the act. Potent of doom, monster fish seen in Bedford. As one, the four men leapt from the table, causing a great stir, and ran outside to the crier. See to the bill, Charles, said Isaac, handing him some coins. We'll meet at nine o'clock at the Ironmonger's company yard. I must go to see my tackle. If the man the crier sent to us spoke right, there'll be no other fish like it in England, said Percy. Or in the world, said Marbenton, whose spirits had lightened considerably. I imagine the length of the fish has doubled with each county the tail passed through, said Isaac. I'll take stout tackle, said Percy. Me for my strongest salmon rod. I for my twelve hairlines, said Marbiton. And me, said Isaac, to new and better angles. The ironmonger's hall had escaped the fire with only the loss of its roof. There were a few workmen about, and the company secretary greeted Isaac cordially. Brother Walton, he said, what brings you to town? They gave each other the secret handshake and made the sign. To look to my property on Chancery Lane in the row, he said. But now, is there a fire in the forge downstairs? Below, the company hall was a large workroom where the more adventurous of the ironmongers experimented with new processes and materials. Certainly there is, said the secretary. We've been making new nails for the roof timbers. I'll need the forge for an hour or so. Send me down the small black case from my locker box, will you? Oh, brother Walton, said the secretary. Off again to some pellucid stream? I doubt, said Walton, but to fish nonetheless.
Walton was in his shirt sleeves rolled up, standing in the glow of the forge. A boy brought down the case from the upper floor, and now Isaac opened it and took out three long grey black bars. Pump away, boy, he said to the young man near the bellows, and there's a copper in it for you. Walton lovingly placed the metal bars, roughened by pounding years before, into the coals. Soon they began to glow readily as the teenage boy worked furiously on the bellows sack. He and Walton were covered with sweat. Lovely colour now, said the boy. To whom you are apprenticed, asked Walton. To the company, sir. Ah, said Walton. Ever seen angles forged? No, sir. Mostly hinges and buckles, nails-like. Sir Abram Jones sometimes puddles his metal here. I have to work most furious when he's here. I sometimes don't like to see him coming. Walton winked conspiratorially. You're right. The metal reaches a likeable ruddy hue. Do you know what this metal is? Cold iron, wasn't it? Well, ore beaten out? No iron like you've seen, or me much either. I've saved it for 19 years. It came from the sky and was given to me by a great scientific man at whose feet it nearly fell. No, said the boy. I heard tell of stones falling from the sky. I assure you, he assured me it did. And now, said Isaac, gripping the smallest metal bar with the great tongs and taking it to the anvil, we shall tease out the fish hook that is hidden away inside. Sparks and clanging filled the basement. They were eight miles out of northern London before the air began to smell more of September than of hell. Two wagons jounced along the road towards Bedford, one containing the four men, the other laden with tackle, baggage and canvas. This is rough enough, said Cotton. We should have sent for my coach. And lost four hours, said Marberton. Those fellows were idle enough, and Isaac wanted an especially heavy cart for some reason. Isaac, you've been most mysterious. We saw neither your tackles nor your baits. Suffice to say, they are none too strong nor none too delicate for the work at hand. Away from town, there was a touch of coming autumn in the air. We might find nothing there, said Marberton, whose spirits had sunk again, or some damnably small salmon. Why then, said Isaac, we'll have Bedfordshire to our own, and all of September, and perhaps an inn where the smell of lavender is in the sheets, and there are twenty printed ballads on the wall. Hmph, <sighs> said Marverton. At noon of the next day, they, stepped, they stopped to water the horses and eat. I ventured to try the trout in this stream, said Percy. Come, come, said Cotton, our goal is Bedford, and we seek Leviathan himself. Would you tempt sport by angling here? But a brace of trouts would be fine now. Have some more cold mutton, said Marberton. He passed out bread and meat and cheese all round. The drivers tugged their forelocks to him and put away their rough affair. How far to Bedford, asked Cotton of the driver called Humphrey. Ten miles, sir, more or less. We should have come farther, but what with the plague, the roads haven't been worked in a year. I'm bruised through and through, said Marberton. Isaac was at the stream, relieving himself against a tree. Damn me, said Percy. Did anyone leave word where I was bound? Marberton laughed. Isaac sent word to all our families. Always considerate. Well, he's been become secretive enough. All those people following him are angling since his book went back to the presses the third time. Ah, books. Percy grew silent. What, still lamenting your loss, said Isaac, returning? What you need is singing. The air, sunshine. Are we not brothers of the angle, out of fishing? Come, back into the charts. Charles, start us off on Tom Over Town. Cotton began to sing in a clear, sweet voice the first stanza. One by one, the others joined, their voices echoing under the bridge. The carts pulled back on the roads. The driver of the baggage carts sang with them. They went down the rutted Bedford Road, September all about them, the long summer after the plague over, their losses, heartaches all gone, all deep felt put away. The horses clopped time to their singing. Bedford was a town surrounded by villages, where they were stared at when they went through. 
The town was divided neatly in two by the double-gated bridge over the River Ouse. After the carts crossed the bridge, they alighted at the doorway of a place called the Topsy Turvy Inn, whose sign above the door was a world globe turned arse over tea kettle. The people who stood by the inn were all looking up the road, where a small crowd had gathered around a man who was preaching from a stump. I think, said Cotton, as they pulled their baggage from the cart, that we're in dissenter country. Of that I'm sure, said Walton. But once we Anglicans were on the outs, and they'd say the same of us. One of the drivers was listening to the man preach, so was Marberton. The preacher was dressed in sombre clothes. He stood on a stump at two cross streets. He was stout and had brown-red hair which glistened in the sun. His moustache was an unruly wild thing on his lips, but his beard was a neat red spike on his chin. He stood with his head uncovered, a great worn class Bible under his arm. London burned clean through. He was saying, Forty-three parish churches raised. Plagues, fires, signs in the sky of the shore and certain return of Christ. The earth swept clean by God's loving mercy. I ask you sinners to repent for the sake of your souls. A man walking by on the other side of the street slowed, listened, stopped. Oh, this is Tuesday, he yelled to the preacher. Save your rantings for the Sabbath, you old jailbird. A few people in the crowd laughed, but others shushed him. In my heart, said the man on the stump, it is always the Sabbath, as long as there are sinners among you. Ah, a fig to your damn sneaking disloyal nonconformist drivel, said the heckler, holding his thumb between his fingers. Wasn't I once as you are now, asked the preacher. Didn't I curse and swear, play at tip-cat, ring bells, cause commotion wherever I went? Didn't God's forgiving grace? A constable hurried up. Here, John, he said to the stout preacher, there's to be no sermons, you know that. He waved his staff of office. And I charge you all under the Act of 13, Elizabeth 53, to go about your several businesses. Let him go on, Harry, yelled a woman. He's got words for sinners. I can't argue that. I can only tell you the law. The sheriff's about on dire business, and he'd have John back in jail, and the jailer turned out in a trice. Come down off the stump, man. The stout man waved his arms. We must disperse, friends. The Sabbath meeting will be at... The constable clapped his hands over his ears and turned his back until the preacher finished giving directions to some obscure clearing in a woods. The red-haired man stood down. Walton had been listening and staring at him, as had the others. Isaac saw that the man had a bag of his tools of the trade with him. He was obviously a coppersmith or brazier, his small anvils, tongs and tap hammers identifying him as such. But he was no ironmonger, so Walton was not duty-bound to be courteous to him. Damnable dissenters indeed, said Cotton. Come, Father Isaac, let's to this hospitable inn. A crier appeared at the end of the street. Town meeting, town meeting, all free men of the town of Bedford and its villages to be in attendance, levies for the taking of the great fish, four of the clock in the town hall. Well, said Marverton, that's where we shall be. They returned to the inn at dusk. They're certainly going on at this thing full tilt, said Percy. Nets, pikes, muskets. If those children had not been new to the Shire, they wouldn't have tried to angle there. And wouldn't have been eaten and mangled, said Warburton. A good thing the judge is both angler and reader, said Cotton. Else Father Walton wouldn't have been given all the morrow to prove our mettle against this great scaly beast. If it have scales, said Marberton. I fear our tackle is not up to it, said Percy. Didn't Father Warburton always say that an angler stores up his tackle against the day he needs it? I'll wager we get good spot out of this before it's over. And the description of the place, in such a narrow defile, the sunlight touches it but a few hours a day, for what possible reason would children fish there? You're losing your faith, Marberton. I've sent you up to your whiskers in the River Lee, snaggling for salmon under a cut bank. 
but I praise God know what I'm about. I suppose, said Isaac, setting himself, that the children thought so too. They noticed the stout dissenter preacher had come in and was talking jovially with his cronies. He lowered his voice and looked toward their table. Most of the talk around Walton was of the receding plague, the consequences of the great fire on the region's timber industry and other manners of report. I expected more talk of the fish, said Percy. To them, said Cotton, it is all the same, just another odious county task, like digging a new canal or hunting down a heretic. They'll be in holiday mood day after tomorrow. They strike me as a cheerless lot, said Percy. Cheerless but efficient. I'd hate to be the fish. You think we won't have to gaff long before the workmen arrive? I have my doubts, said Marberton. But you always do. Next morning, the woods became thick and rank on the road they took out of town. The carts bounced in the ruts. The early sun was lost in the mist and the trees. The road rose and fell against the narrow valleys. Someone is following us, said Percy, getting out his spyglass. Probably a peddler out this way, said Cotton, straining his eye at the pack on the man's back. I've seen no cottages, said Marberton. He was taking kinks out of his fishing line. Percy looked around him. What a godless-looking place. The trees were more stunted, thicker. Quick shapes, which may have been grouse, moved among their twisted boles. An occasional cry, unknown to the four anglers, came from the depths of the woods. A dull boom, as of a great door closing, sounded from far away. The horses halted, whinnying, their nostrils flared. In truth, said Walton, from where he rested against a cushion, I feel myself some leagues from Christendom. The gloom deepened. Green was gone now. Nothing but greys and browns met the eye. The road was a rocky rut. The carts rose, wheels teetering on stones, and agonisingly fell. Humphrey and the other driver swore great blazing oaths. Be so abusive as you will, said Cotton to them, but take not the Lord's name in vain, for we are Christian men. As you say, Humphrey tugged his forelock. The trees reached overhead and the sky was obscured. An owl swept over, startling them. Something large bolted away, feet drumming on the high bank of the road. Percy and Cotton grew quiet. Walton talked of lakes, streams of summer. Seeing others grow moody, he sang a quiet song. A driver would sometimes curse. A droning, flapping sound grew louder, passed to their right, veered away. The horses shied then, trying to turn around in the road, almost upsetting the carts. They refused to go on. We'll have to tether them here, said Humphrey. Besides your lordship, I think I see water at the end of the road. It was true. In what dim light there was, they saw a darker sheen down below. We must take the second cart down there, Charles, said Walton, even if we must push it ourselves. We'll never make it, said Percy. Whatever for, said Cotton. We can't take our tackle and viands down there. Not my tackle, said Walton. Marberton just sighed. They pushed and pulled the second cart down the hill. From the front, they kept it from running away on the incline, from the back to get it over stones and the size of barrels. It was stuck. I can't go on, said Marberton. Surely you can, said Walton. Your cheerfulness is depressing, said Percy. Be that as it may, think trout, Marberton. Think salmon. Marberton strained against the recalcitrant wheel. The cart moved forward a few inches. See, said Walton. See, a good foot's as good as a mile. They grunted and groaned. They stood panting at the edge of the mere. The black sides of the valley lifted to right and left like walls. The water itself was weed-choked, scummy, and smelled of sewer ditch. Trees came down to its very edges. Broken and rotted stumps dotted the shore. Mist rose from the water in fetid curls. Sunlight had not yet come to the bottom of the defile. To the left and right behind all lay twisted woody darkness. The valley rose like a hand around them. Except ahead, there was a break with no trees at the centre of the cleft. Through it they saw shining and blue-purple against the cerulean of the sky, 
the far-off Chiltern Hills. Those, said a voice behind them, and they jumped and turned and saw the man with the pack. It was the stout red-haired preacher of the day before. Those are the delectable mountains, he said, and this is the slough of despond. He built a small lean-to some hundred feet from them. The other three anglers unloaded their gear and began to set it up. What, Father Walton, not setting up your poles? asked Charles Carlton. No, no, said Isaac, standing the weed-clotted swamp with a sure eye. I'll let you young ones try your luck first. Percy looked at the waters. The fish is most likely a carp or other rough type, he said. No respectable fish could live in this mire. I hardly see room for anything that could swallow a child. It is Leviathan, said the preacher from his shelter. It is the beast of Babylon which shall rise in the days before Antichrist. These woods are beneath his sway. What do you want? asked Cotton. To dissuade you and the others who will come from doing this? It is God's will these things come to pass. Oh, hell and damn, said Percy. Exactly, said the preacher. Percy shuddered involuntarily. Daylight began to creep down to the mere's edge. With the light, the stench from the water became worst. You're not doing very much to stop us, said Cotton. He was fitting together an 18-foot rod of yew, fir and hazelwood. When you raise Leviathan, said the preacher, then will I begin to preach. He took a small cracked pot from his large bag and began to set up his anvil. Percy's rod had a butt as thick as a man's arm. It tapered throughout its length to a slender reed. The line was made of plated, dried horsehair. It's 12 strands at the pole and tapering to nine. The line was 40 feet long. Onto the end of this, he fastened a sinker and a hook as long as a crooked little finger. Where's my baits? Oh, here they are. He reached into a bag filled with wet moss, pulled out a gob of worms and threaded seven or eight, their ends wriggling onto the hook. The preacher had started a small fire. He was filling an earthen pot with solder. He paid very little attention to the anglers. Percy and Marberton, who was fishing with a shorter but thicker rod, were ready before cotton. I'll take this fishy spot here, said Percy, and you can have that grown-over place there, he pointed beyond the preacher. We won't catch anything, said Marberton suddenly, and pulled the bait from his hook and threw it into the water. Then he walked back to the cart and sat down and shook. Come, come, said Isaac. I've never seen you so discouraged, even after fishless days on the Thames. Never mind me, said Marberton. Then he looked down at the ground. I shouldn't have come all this way. I have business in the city. There are no fish here. Cajoling could not get him up again. Isaac's face became troubled. Marberton stayed put. Well, I'll take the fishy spot then, said Cotton, tying onto his line an artificial fly of green with hackles the size of porcupine quills. He moved past the preacher. I'm set to wager you'll get no strikes on that gaudy bird's wing, said Percy. There is no better fishing than angling fine and far off, answered Cotton. Heavens, what a stink! This is the place, said the preacher, without looking up, where all the sins of mankind have been flowing for 1,600 years. Not 20,000 cartloads of earth could fill it up. Prattle, said Cotton. Prattle it may be, said the preacher. He puddled solder in a sandy ring, then he dipped the pot in it. It stinks from mankind's sins, nonetheless. It stinks from mankind's bowels, said Cotton. He made two back casts with his long rod, letting more line out the wire guide at the tip each time. He placed the huge fly gently on the water 60 feet away. There are no fish about, said Percy, down the mire's edge. Not even gudgeon. Nor snakes, said Cotton. What does this monster eat? Miscreant children, said the preacher. Sins feed on the young. Percy made a clumsy cast into some slime-choked weeds. His rod was pulled from his hands and flew across the water. A large dark shape blotted the pond's edge and was gone. The rod floated to the surface and lay still. Percy stared down at his hands in disbelief. 
The pole came slowly in towards shore, pushed by the stinking breeze. Cotton pulled his fly off the water, shook his line and walked back toward the carts. That's all for me too, he said. They turned to Isaac. He rubbed his hands together gleefully, making a show he did not feel. The preacher was grinning. Call the carters down, said Walton. Move the cart to the very edge of the mere. While they were moving the wagon with its rear facing the water, Walton went over to the preacher. My name is Isaac Walton, he said, holding out his hand. The preacher took it formally. John Bunyan, mechanic preacher, said the other. I hold no man's religious beliefs against him, if he be an honest man or an angler. My friends are not of like mind, though they both be fishermen and honest. Would that parliament were full of such as yourself, said Bunyan. I took your hand, but I am dead set against what you do. If not us, said Walton, then the sheriff with his powder and pikes. I shall prevail against them too. This is God's warning to mankind. You're a London man. You've seen the fire, the plague. London is no place for an honest man. I'm of Staffordshire. Even you see London is a place of sin, said Bunyan. You have children? Have two by my second wife, said Walton. Seven others died in infancy. I have four, Bunyan said. One born blind. His eyes took on a faraway look. I want them to fear God in hope of eternal salvation. As do we all, said Walton. And this monster is warning to mankind of the coming rains of blood and fire and the fall of stars. Either we shall take it or the townsmen will come tomorrow. I know them all, said Bunyan. Mr. Nurse Nickel, Mr. By Your Leave, Mr. Cravenly Crafty. Do ye not feel your spirits lag, your backbone fail? They'll not last long as you have. Walton had noticed his own lassitude, even with the stink of the slough goading him. Cotton, Percy and Marberton, finished with the cart, were sitting disconsolately on the ground. The swamp had brightened some, the blazing blue mountain ahead seemed inches away, but the woods were dark, the defile precipitous, and the noises loud as before. It gets worse after dark, said the preacher. I beg you, take not the fish. If you stop the sheriff, he'll have you in prison. It's prison from which I come, said Brunyan. To jail I shall go back, for I know I'm right. Do your conscience, said Walton, for that way lies salvation. Amen, said Bunyan, and went back to his pots. Percy, Marberton, and Charles Colton watched as Walton set up his tackle. Even with flagging spirits, they were intrigued. He'd had the carters pegged down the trace poles of the wagon. Then he sectioned together a rod like none they had seen before. It was barely nine feet long, starting big as a smith's biceps, ending in a fine end. It was made of many split lathes glued seamlessly together. On each foot of its length past the handle were iron guides bound with wire. There was a hole in the handle of the rod, and now Walton reached in the wagon and took out a shining metal wheel. "'What's that, a squirrel caged?' asked Percy. They saw him pull line out from it. It clicked with each turn. There was a handle on the wheel and a peg at the bottom. He put the peg through the hole in the handle and fastened it down with an iron screw. He threaded the line, which was thick as a pen quill, through the guides, opened the black case and took out the largest of the hooks he'd fashioned. On the line he tied a strong wire chain and affixed a sinker to one end and the hook on the other. He put the rod in the wagon seat and climbed down the back and opened his bait box and reached in. Come, my pretty, he said, reaching. He took something out, white, segmented, moving. It filled his hand. It was a maggot that weighed half a pound. I had them kept down a cistern behind a shambles, said Walton. He lifted the bait to show them. Charles, take my line. After I bait the angle, make a hand cast in the edge of those stumps yonder. As I was saying, take your gentles, put them in a cool well, feed them on liver of pork for the summer. They'll eat and grow and not change into flies, for the changing of one so large kills it. Keep them well fed, put them into wet moss before using them. I feared the commotion and flames had collapsed the well, 
Though the butcher shop was gone, the baits were still fat and lively. As he said the last word, he plunged the hook through the white flesh of the maggot. It twisted and oozed in his hand. He opened a small bottle and doused it with camphor oil just before the cast. They smelled the pungent liquid as he poured it. The bait went into a frenzy. Now, Charles, he said, pulling off 50 feet of line from the reel. Cotton whirled the weighted hook around and around his head. Be so kind as to tie this rope to my belt and the cart, Percy, said Walton. Percy did so. Cotton made the hand cast, the pale globule hitting the water and sinking. Do as I have told you, said Walton, and you shall not fail to catch the biggest fish. Something large between the eyes swallowed the hook and five feet of line. And set the hook sharply, and you shall have great sport. Walton, 70 years old, thin of build, stood in the seat, jerked far back over his head, curving the rod in a loop. The waters of the slough exploded. They saw the shallow bottom and a long dark shape, and the fight was on. The preacher stood up from his pots, opened his class Bible, and began to read in a loud, strong voice. Render to Caesar, he said. Walton flinched and put his back into turning the fish, which was heading towards the stump. The reel's clicks were a buzz. Bunyan raised his voice. Those things which are Caesar's, and to God, those things which are God's. Oh, shut up, said Cotton. The man's got trouble enough. The wagon creaked and began to lift off the ground. The rope and belt cut into Walton's flesh. His arms were nearly pulled from their sockets. Sweat sprang to his forehead like curds through a cheesecloth. He gritted his teeth and pulled. The pegs lifted from the ground. Bunyan read on. The sunlight faded, though it was only late afternoon. The noise from the woods grew louder. The blue hills in the distance became flat, grey. The whole valley leaned over them, threatening to fall over them and kill them. Eyes shined in the deeper woods. Walton had regained some line in the last few hours. Bunyan read on, pausing long enough to light a horn lantern from his fire. After encouraging Walton at first, Percy, Marbert and Cotton had become quiet. The sounds were those of Bunyan's droning voice, screams from the woods, small pops from the fire and the ratcheting of the reel. The fish was fighting him on the bottom. He'd had no sight of it yet since the strike. Now the water was becoming a flat black sheet in the flailing light. It was no salmon or trout or carp. It must be a pike or eel or some other toothfish or a serpent or cuttlefish with squiddy arms to tear the skin from a man. Walton shivered. His arms were numb. His shoulders a tight, aching band. His legs where he braced against the footrest quivered with fatigue. Still he held, even when the fish ran to the far end of the swamp. If he could keep it away from the snags, he could wear it down. The fish turned and the line slackened. Walton pumped the rod up and down. He regained the lost line. The water hissed as the cording cut through it. The fish headed for the bottom. Tiredly, Walton heaved, turned the fish. The wagon creaked. Blessed are they that walk in the path of righteousness, said Bunyan. The ghost came in over the slough straight at them. Monkey demons began to chatter in the woods. Eyes peered from the bore of every tree. Bunyan's candle was the only light. Something walked heavily on a limb at the wood's edge, bending it. Marbet and screamed and ran up the road. Percy was on his feet. Ghosts and banshees flew at him, veering away at the last instant. You have doubts, Bunyan said to him. You're assailed. You think yourself unworthy. Percy trotted up the stony road, ragged shapes fluttering the air behind him, trying to tug his hair. Skeletons began to dance across the slough, acting out pantomimes of life, death and love. The seven deadly sins manifested themselves. Hell yawned open to receive them all. Then the sun went down. Before you join the others, Charles, said Walton, pumping the rod, cut away my coat and collar. You'll freeze, said Cotton, but climbed in the wagon and cut the coat up the back and down the sleeves. It and the collar fell away. 
Good luck, Father Walton, he said. Something plucked at his eyes. We go to town for help. Be honest and trustworthy all the rest of your days, said Isaac Walton. Cotton looked down. Cotton looked stunned. Something large ran down from the woods, through the wagon and up into the trees. Cotton ran up the hill. The thing loped after him. Walton managed to gain six inches on the fish. Grinning, things sat on the taut line. The air was filled with meteors, burning red, thick as snow. Huge worms pushed themselves out of the ground, caught and ate the demons, then turned inside out. The demons flew away. Everything in the darkness had claws and horns. And lo, the seventh seal was broken, and there was quietness on the earth for the space of half an hour. Red Bunyan, he had lit his third candle. Walton could see the water again. A little light came from somewhere behind him. The noises of the woods diminished. A desultory ghost or skeleton flitted greyly by. There was a calm in the air. The fish was tiring. Walton did not know how long he had fought on or with what power. He was a human ache and he wanted to sleep. He was nodding. The townsmen come, said Bunyan. Walton stole a fleeting glance behind him. Hundreds of people came quietly and cautiously through the woods. Some extinguished torches as he watched. Walton cranked in another ten feet of line. The fish ran, but only a short way, slowly, and Walton reeled him back. It was still a long way out, still another hour before he could bring it to Gaff. Walton heard low talk, recognised Percy's voice. He looked back again. The people had pikes, nets, and a small cannon. He turned, reeled the fish, fighting it all the way. You do not love God, said Bunyan suddenly, shutting his Bible. Yes, I do, said Walton, pulling as hard as he could. He gained another foot. I love God as much as you. You do not, said Bunyan. I see it now. I love God, yelled Walton and heaved the rod. A fin broke the frothing water. In your heart, where God can see from his high throne, you lie, said Bunyan. Walton reeled and pulled. More fin showed. He quit cranking. God, forgive me, said Walton. It's fishing I love. I thought so, said Bunyan. <laughs> Reaching in his pack, he took out a pair of tin snips and cut Walton's line. Isaac fell back in the wagon. John Bunyan, you son of a bitch, said the sheriff. <laughs> You're under arrest for hampering the kid's business. I'll see you rot. Walton re- watched the coils of line on the surface slowly sink into the brownie depths of the sloth of despond. He began to cry, fatigue and numbness taking over his body. I denied God, he said to Cotton. I committed the worst sin. Cotton covered him with a blanket. Oh, Charles, I denied God. What's worse, said Cotton. You lost the fish. (laughs) Percy and Marberton helped him up. The carters hitched the wagons. The horses now docile. Bunyan was being ridden back to jail by constables, his tinker's bag clanging against the horse's side. They put the crying Walton into the cart, covered him more, climbed in. Some farmers helped them get the carts over the rocks. Walton's last view of the slough was of resolute and grim-faced men staring at the water and readying their huge grapples, their guns, their cruel hook nets. They were on the road back to town. Walton looked up into the trees, devoid of ghosts and demons. He caught a glimpse of the blue Chilton Hills. Father Isaac, said Cotton, rest now. Think of spring. Think of clear water, of leaping trout. My dreams will be haunted by God the rest of my days, he said tiredly. Walton fell asleep. He dreamed of clear water, leaping trouts. This story is for Chad Oliver, Punisher of Trouts. <laughs> that is such an excellent story. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, good choice. What did you like about it? Um, I really loved this idea of 
uh, fishing as religion. I really, <laughs> I really love that. Um, I also love the Bunyan character. What a piece of work. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, just there, just to heckle, just to heckle people fishing. <laughs> I love that as a, as a uh, kind of scenario as well. You know, because I, I'm also really interested in how fishing gets used in uh, a lot of stories as, as a kind of um, metaphorical activity. Yeah, which it's also getting used like that here. Um, but I've never seen anyone heckle that situation. <laughs> uh, and I really, really enjoyed that a lot. I really loved that. But was it just heckling? I don't think it was merely heckling. I think, um, you know, I, I think he was generally preaching as well. I saw the, the feeling that I had of him was more of a, more of a kind of street preacher. And I think there's, there's a big element of heckling to engage people in, in street preaching. It made me think of uh, maybe a, only a few weeks ago, I was walking down the street near Flinders Street Station, and there was a street preacher there in the early kind of evening of a Friday night. And like most street preachers I've seen in that area, uh, they'll do the love and caring spiel. And then when they get into the fire and brimstone part, they really get into it. You know, it's not about, it's not so much about the love and compassion. It's more about if you don't listen to me, though, here's all the fun stuff that'll happen to you. Yeah, you never see a street preacher who's just gushing with love. No, do you, you, know, you don't but see you that. you do see them fired up with, yeah. with anger. So the funny thing I thought about this guy is that he was just kind of pretty calm about his fire and brimstone part. But when he was uh, having, you know, people react to him, he would jump on that. So people were shaking their heads and you'd say, well, shake your head, miss, but, you know, you'll burn in hell forever. And it was kind of so matter of fact about it. But the one line that stayed with me that made everyone around him laugh was when he was saying, you know, about scandalous kind of times out being against God. Um, somebody sort of shaking their head and him saying, um, well, tonight's festivities cancelled due to eternal hellfire. <laughs> <laughs> Event cancelled. And uh, everyone laughed. Everyone laughed. And I thought that was a great, it was a great street preacher because he was kind of playing into that and he was also... He was being antagonistic, but not in a way that was extremely judgmental like I've seen in the past. I mean, it was. The words were. But it was it was fun. And it was antagonistic in a fun way. I also think there's great language in it. The descriptions of stuff is great. There's one bit where he describes the smell of the air changing from, um, cha you know, instead of smelling like hell, it smelled like it smelled like September or something. And, and, and that was great, that line. I mean, there were so many... It's... It's such a mythical story. I wasn't expecting it to go completely mythical right at the end with the skeletons dancing on the water and, you know, that... What did you think of in that bit? I really liked it. I thought it was... It's it's quite brave to go that far as a writer, I think. The way that it was... it was The scene was drawn in the beginning and all the characters were introduced in the tavern talking about all these kinds of prophetic visions of Armageddon and laughing about it. I thought it was going to go in a completely different direction. And then when they started to assemble their gear, you know, it almost felt like a crusade was happening. And, and this was me just sort of going fishing as religion again. I really didn't think that it was going to go completely mythical. I thought it was going to be quite grounded. Um, I really liked that because it, it played with my expectation of where the story was going to go. Do you, do you feel that in that moment things went mythical like that or do you think it was the stress and the strain and the men were seeing these visions you know if you were tied to a cart with a giant fish pulling you and you're at the point where you're saying cut my shirt off me because it's hindering me yeah i'm gonna pull at this yeah do you think there were demons there or do you think 
you, in this story, do you think that's what the author did? Well, do you think they were aware? It could have been a mania, you know? And uh, you know, I, I was thinking, there were two things I was thinking about when that was happening. One is that phenomena that happens when people get frostbite, where they they go so far into their extreme circumstance that all of their preservation instincts go completely the opposite direction. And they take all their clothes they off. They take all of their clothes off because, you know, they think that's what's stopping them from getting warm. And you just, you know, you just really expedite your kind of your extreme dire situation by doing the exact opposite thing. That's what I was thinking about when he was, you know, under this extreme stress. And and I was I was actually thinking, is he, was that character, was was he a priest or was he, he was a godly man, but was he an actual priest? I'm not sure. I can't remember if it says that, because that, call, he calls him Father Walton. He does, and, yeah. and I'm not sure whether that's father in the religious sense or father in the respectful sense. Right. And so I was thinking maybe the, the coat and collar, when he talks about having that cut oh, off. Oh, that, could, that could be. Uh, because he immediately rejects God after that. Yeah. So I thought that, you know, his, this coat and collar is getting in the way of his fishing, and so cut it off me. And then he's... Isn't he's, that a great line? Oh, yeah. It's fishing I love. Yeah, yeah. and he's just totally <laughs> cajoled by Bunyan going, admit it, admit that you hate God. I love that. I thought that was so great. And he's there, I mean, I imagine him sort of almost bare-chested and just as a ruin and just going, I love fishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's there amongst this thing he's created, this hell he's created for himself of this giant cart with this giant hook with a maggot he's been feeding. Yeah. And, like, and, it, oh, that is hell on earth. You yeah. know, that's disgusting. Oh, it was so disgusting. And I I loved it. And, and his, his line that he's using, you know, the, the equipment that he's using is all gone into such beautiful detail as well. The 10 horse hairs that taper out to eight, the... The asteroid iron, the meteorite yeah. iron that he's beaten out. I just, I thought that was really great. And it was... The yeah. detail that, that I thought it was missing, I thought at some point somebody might suggest that they'd need a child as bait. Yeah, yeah, I know. I love, yeah. <laughs> I thought that might happen. Like, they'd be like, maybe we just need a naughty kid here. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's Bunyan's thing, isn't it? Is that you can't, you can't pull the Leviathan out because it's serving God's purpose. Yeah, it's here to eat kids. Yeah. <laughs> Which is God's purpose. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Who is this angry God? <laughs> um, I and also... that's the difference between the last story. This is this is a God that's infallible in their minds. Mm. It's an infallible God, and, and his will is infallible. So this, this, this giant fish that's eating children is God's will. Well, there's, and then I think they, the, the author sort of plays with that also a little earlier when he's describing the fever that the, the township is is sort of uh, coming into now that they've decided that they're going to catch this fish. And one of the lines that I really liked is that just offhand, uh, one of the characters says, you know, oh, it's, they're very feverish. It's kind of like a festival or like striking down a heretic, uh, you know? So yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They're, they're, the, yeah. They're, they're really, yeah, they're really, they're really efficient. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the fever of burning someone at the yeah, stake, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, or like a witch trial. I, I really, yeah, I thought yeah, that, that was bit was great. great. That was bit was great. I also, I love at the start the stargazy pie. I wonder if that's a thing with fish heads cut, yeah, it's baked the, in it's around the, little, the outside. Have you the, had Have you had that before? I haven't. I've never had it before, but I've. I mean, I'm a big fan of cooking shows, as you know, and uh, I'm an even bigger fan of the Great British Bake Off. So this is kind of like two worlds. Uh, and have they made a stargazy pie? In it? I am pretty sure I've seen someone make a stargazing pie. That was a fish curry pie that had, um, yeah, the the heads popped out. Yeah. It's such a it's such a hilarious image to me. Like the idea that you want there to be like this pond, baked mm. pond, yeah, 
that you're about and to. And they just stare at you with a look of, I imagine, just great betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there anything else in it? Uh, like, uh, so I come from a, a religious background. You know, my uh, and like I said, I, I mean, I grew up reading John Bunyan, the character, and the book that the real John Bunyan wrote, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is, you know, he uses terms from it, the, the mountains of despair and the slough of despond or whatever it was. And and so the the religious stuff, I, I really I really get it. You know, it really speaks to me. How do you feel about that religious stuff? Well, so I, I don't know this language, but that slough of despond was something that really resonated with me. And I'll tell you how I felt about it. It was, I imagine myself being there at the pond, going fishing, and then you know, have undertaking this great adventure with some friends. With the stink of sins around yeah, you. Yeah, and then and then having this this guy, you know, who I'd seen street preaching before in the town, just turn up and make his little lean to, being quite a bizarre looking character as well, and then looking redhead at, man, and then looking at this this you know hills out in the distance, saying like, oh, there's there's the hills, and then just having this guy go like. Yes, those are those hills, and this is the slough of despond. And all I could think about was just, all right, mate. <laughs> like, but, call your jets. But I love the way that the the lesser men, one of them can't even fish. He just puts his line down. He just looks at the pond and just and walks back to the cart. And it's like, no, that's well, it. Well, they all gave up pretty easily, didn't they? Yeah, that's a, like for, I don't understand that. What, what do you think that is? I think it was, you know, the camaraderie that they talk about in the beginning I thought was maybe key to that because it is just about having a little having a little adventure together. And, you know, at the, the fish is a portent, a new portent that they they put together with the comet, with the plague, with the fire. It's just the... the yeah, what a rest- time to be alive. Yeah, and so they're there talking about it. And then I, for me, like, I think it's this revelation of going, but we can actually do something about this one. We can catch this fish. That's where the excitement is, right? Then they get out there, and, and how I imagine it is that, actually, this is beyond us. This this fish is beyond it. As much as the fire, which we could have put out, was beyond us. As much as the, you know, comet in the sky was beyond us of even understanding. And they're talking about having to leave because the plague will get them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how I read it. It was Except uh, for the one guy that's prepared a giant maggot. Yeah. The one, he's, he's prepared. He's been yeah. feeding a maggot for, like, what I love is... He hadn't even heard of this fish when he started feeding that maggot. No, I know. He just well, I mean, clearly, fishing is his religion. This yeah. is this is kind of you know, this is his huge uh, spiritual and emotional investment that he has in his life. Of course, he has a well of maggots. Do you reckon that guy ever fished again? Well, I just I think that we all don't we don't we all really have a well of maggots in our lives? <laughs> <laughs> Mine's pretty close to the surface, actually. <laughs> Um, do you think that guy ever fished again? I yeah, I think. I do you think, think so. he enjoyed it again? Uh, no, maybe it, maybe it's maybe it's the only enjoyment. Maybe it's maybe it's just a shameful enjoyment after that. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question though. That's a good question. Do you think he ever thought about fish in church again? Oh yeah, I mean, I think he'd, he'd be thinking about that fish forever. Oh, that I mean, fish, just, yeah, well, the well, Leviathan. The, the other thing is that the the story ends with him dreaming about fish. It does. So yeah, I think. I actually think it's a really nice touch that it ends with him. He does dream a fish mm, mm. instead of just leaving him in despair. I think I think that's really interesting that he escapes in his dreams. So the other thing that I was thinking about actually was uh, there's this 
It's just amazing because you keep picking stories that I have, like, I connect with really closely and then uh, remind me of other other kind of forms of media or other things that I've seen or heard about or spoken to people about that just stay with me for a very long time. And one of them was this this terrible TV show called River Monsters that I, <laughs> that I used to love. Yes. I used to, have you seen this show? Yeah. Yeah, so I love this show. Um, it's it's just a guy who goes out. He's an, it's so, He has a strange mix in his occupation. It's something like he's a professional fisherman and also some kind of like uh, biologist that uh, that specializes in Cretaceous period, you know, dinosaurs <laughs> or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. That's probably not correct, but it's, it, was, it was one of those ones going like, well, those two things aren't related, but you're just ham-fisting it for this TV show, and I get it. He goes out on this one episode, and I also love this show because they would do ridiculous recreations, right? They would go out, they would, he would, uh, you know, research this creature that he's heard about, always carries kind of uh, notebook around and be constantly taking notes about it like as if they already they haven't already done all that work and it's all for show um so there was this really really uh thick facade that they just slathered onto this show of him being this like serious kind of dude but he was just he's a host he's a tv show host up until this episode that's what i thought they go out to the mountains somewhere in india and then in this uh himalayan river system there's a fish out there that keeps killing people drowns people so and is potentially eating them but it's definitely drowning people it could have been a big car by overturning their boats or uh it would it would grab people then pull them under the water and drown them what so it would uh like really yeah no this is no so this is for real like this actually and then what happens is that it's really rough terrain out there and they have to camp out there and they're, they're kind of people are fishing out there for other fish that's why it keeps happening so the fishermen are, are killed or the kids who are in the area um, are also being killed because they're smaller, you know, and potentially eaten. So they're, they're out there for a month. And then they show him camping out there for a month. And he's, he just, it looks like he's slowly losing his sanity because he's, he's out there and his <laughs> clothes are just, just shredded off him because he has to climb over these rocks every day to put his line in the water for at least 10 hours every day while he's waiting for this fish. And he's not really sure this is where the fish is, but according to the counts of the local people, like, this is probably where it is. You can't see it. His clothes are just falling off him. He's going insane. There's a little bit of a kind of heart of darkness feel to it, you know? Yeah. Then um, The horror, the horror. Yeah, the, the horror, the fish. You know, it's a little... It's. It sounds like it's over the top, but being that the show was already over the top, this seemed like a really big slice of reality like this guy wasn't hamming it up for the cameras anymore he didn't really look yeah, like it, he it didn't even look there. fun anymore no it didn't look fun at all it didn't look <laughs> adventurous or fun you know um it just looked like his own personal hell and he was he was there and he was he eventually he eventually catches the fish and he pulls it in it's this exhausting fight with the fish much like it's being described in this story then uh he's standing there in his up to his waist in the water, and it's this just enormous carp, like uh, bigger than a, a fully grown human, and it really definitely looks like it could drown somebody if it just grabbed them and pulled them under the water. It's terrifying looking. I, I don't know what kind of fish it was, but, I mean, I'm sure you could just look it up and find it. The craziest thing to me, this thing looks like a it could kill people, right? He has this month-long battle to catch it, catches the fish, he lets it go. He, they don't... They don't kill the fish. They let it go back into the water system. I wonder about if this character, if Walton had have caught this fish, 
well, they were going to kill it, right? Or would he have wanted to kill it? Who knows? Well, I mean, the town was offering a reward for it. I feel like that's not why they were there, though. No, but they were. So there could have been that. But also, you know, he seemed like a man uh, in nature. So he may have, you know, angling was his true religion. He may have put it back. Mm. You know, I don't know. And I guess fishing is a lot about the trophy. I feel like he would have at least rubbed John Bunyan's face on the side of the fish before <laughs> yeah, he threw sure. it back. Yeah. What did the the villagers think of this guy throwing the fish back well, in? So that's did, they, what, did they just cut the episode? Or? That's what I always um, was thinking about. Like the one that's just like, uh, it killed my aunt. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but, you know, revenge gets nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was here for a month fishing, so. <laughs> so for me, the big thing that, that, that I think links the two stories we read today that's most interesting is that in the first one, the two guys beat the gods and in the next one, all of the fishermen and no one beats the god. Mm. So, I mean, if you, were, if you were to choose to align yourself to an understanding of a deity, would it be closer to fish god or would it be closer to Puritan god or Greek god? Wow. Um, I choose not to answer that. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> that's, that's too big a question. If you chose to, oh jeez. No, I mean, like, I, I think what's interesting though is that both of the stories um, contain them hunting some kind of presence as well. And in the first one, they just like it's just like bang, caught a god, skinned it, we're eating it. Yeah. The next one, it's like they can't get near this this creature. Well, it shows a fin. I think is the closest that it comes, but uh, it's such a feverish kind of closing act there, where Paul Bunyan. You know, again, I can't get over this this scene of him yelling at, at Walt, Walter, Walton, yelling at Walton to denounce God. <laughs> I, I can't. I really can't get over that. And then, and then, as soon as he does, he's got his tin snips ready and just cuts the line. Isn't that bit amazing? Yeah, that, that that bit to me is shocking. Mm. When he goes, I thought so, and just cuts the yeah, line. Like it's it was, like, that was all he was waiting for. And yeah. everyone's there, and the sheriff's like, "Oh, fuck you, man." <laughs> Um, that's a, the thing ate our kids. That's like the Indian people in that village. Yeah, no, like, that's, that's that's exactly what would be their reaction. That's why I kept thinking about this whole situation of. I'm so, is, is he in a jail in Nepal or something now? <laughs> like, just becoming religious. No, he, he then went on the next episode to go hunt a large stingray in Thailand, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds way. Like they were like, hey, hey, we'll send you to a Thai resort. That's fine. <laughs> the next one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. I, I just, I really love that story. I, I'm interested, though, to ask you more about the kind of Puritan context there and who Paul Bunyan is and what. Why do you think he was well, used as a character in this? So it, it's um, it's it's even more telling that uh, they yell at him, uh, get that nonconformist bullshit out of here. Because uh, the nonconformist was, was the kind of um, Protestantism I was brought up in. And basically the, the main tenet of it is the Bible and nothing but the Bible. So all of the, the priests and all of the, the saints and all of that stuff that it was built up around uh, different ideas of a Christian, of Christendom, uh, they were obliterated and you weren't allowed to add to the Bible or take away from the Bible. You just look at it and you read that. And that's why he's liter- taking literally the apocalypse in, in, in Revelations. Right, right, okay. Um, so that, that's considered nonconformist? Yeah, because the conformed view is that at the time, well, originally the conform view, you've you got to think back to like, so the Catholic Church first and mm. then with Luther, um, 
you know, banging banging the rules on the wall, like banging the laws on the wall, and that became the pro- the start of like start of the Protestant movement, you know, mm. and Protestant, you know, they're protesting. So that was like a, a move away, and and so nonconformist meaning not conforming to the the main ideology. Mm, okay, yeah. I mean, it does conform to the Bible, but mm. that's not what they're rebelling against really with their views. And so, I mean, if you were to speculate, why do you think that this character was used? And do you think it's a good use of a historical character in fiction? Um, yeah, look, I think so because like, uh, you know, John Bunyan's stories are these, like, they're quite hilariously over the top, as I said, like metaphors on the surface stories. And so he, he is a man who was ready to say, you know, um, look at this woman. She is the woman of vanity and she's going to hell. Like, and that would be the literal thing written in the story, you know, that was meant to be this right, allegorical right. story, but right. it'd be like a man walked down the road and up ahead, uh, up, up towards him walked this woman, Miss Vanity, and she was so vain. And like, that's how it, that's how the story is written. Oh, okay. So it's almost, I mean, like some parts of the story are written just like that. And then, so to have the storyteller of stories like that in there is quite fun. That's a pretty fun way to use him. Now, here's something to throw in for you as well. This is what, this is, this is going to blow your mind. This is an American author. This is a middle American author who's mostly known for writing, his most famous stories are about Native American culture. Oh. Yeah, that is, yeah. It's so surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Because he gets the tone for, for it so well. I mean, it's so, it's so spot on, um, just really from the beginning. But I think the big thing is there are a lot of like winks in there where sure. the language is so preposterously like conformed to the time, you know? Sure. I, I got that feeling from the beginning when they're all assembling at the pub and they're all sort of guffawing and, you know, ha ha and as, yeah. as an old boys club sort of thing. I did like the, the kind of the hellish hellish uh, cityscape that London was, though, mm. uh, and the little safety that they found in a glass of sherry in a warm pub. I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Look, uh, that's, like, I just honestly thought you'd like the story. I thought you'd like the, the adventure side of it and the and the fact that there's so much stuff about um, artisans in it, you know, the blacksmiths, and even the even the, the preacher is a mechanic, you know? Yeah, he's a, uh, he's a little tinsmith or a yeah. smith, isn't he? Yeah, you know, and then the, the fishing itself is done like a profession, you know? Yeah, and all the descriptions of people actually making things, mm. you know. I did really enjoy that. I did very much enjoy that side. Great story. Really great story. I'm really interested to see or hear about John's reaction to the story, actually. Well, there you go, John. You've got to give us a reaction so we can talk about it next time. <laughs> uh, I guess that's it for Dear John Stories this time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. It's probably a little bit longer. That was a longer story. Um, if you fell asleep to it, that's okay. I fall asleep to audiobooks all the time. It's one of my favourite things to do. Tune in next time. We'll have some more stories. Uh, give us some feedback. Let us know if there's any stories you want to hear or any ideas you have. Or even if anybody wants to commission me to write a story, hey, go ahead. I'll write something for you. Um, uh, any, any words from you, Eric? Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, hope you enjoyed the pilots. We're looking forward to putting more of these together. Always looking for input from people, so please get in contact. Let's talk stories. Yeah, more stories.